Hey, Kai. Are you at home? I am at home. What are you doing today? Well, I just got back from walking around photographing with the Leica. It got sunny and cloudy and sunny and cloudy, but it was a nice day for it. Nice. So we are releasing episode two of the photo show where you are both, uh, well, you are a guest, but now also a, a frequent co-host as well, I would say. Yeah, let, uh, I've, I've done at least three, I think, or maybe more. But yeah, so yeah, definitely happy to be part of it. Thanks. No, and it's great to have you. Um, in the podcast, you mention a show that's coming up of yours. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I should mention it again since it's already in the thing. But Why not? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, October 5th at the Oarsman Gallery at Smith College, and it's up until Halloween. Uh, it's photographs of uh, my kudzu work. I haven't come up with a title for the show yet, but I might might come up with something. Well, there's plenty of time. Something Halloween-related, maybe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Attack of the killer, you know, devil's weed or something. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else? Uh interesting you've been looking at it occurred to me that during the podcast we recorded i was in the middle of doing the six-week summer photo intensive program uh that we run at columbia and uh listening to a podcast and you know hearing about that year-long seminar and everything it occurred to me that some people listening to this might one you know imagine that they might want to try to have that experience and study with tom oh sure and, and one option is we have this six-week summer photo intensive that Tom and I run. And uh, if you go to arts.columbia.edu and click on the summer links, you'll see it. It, it runs May through July for, for six weeks, five days a week. And Tom's a big part of that. So I thought I'd throw that out. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll talk soon. Great. Look forward to hearing it. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Everything's good? Okay. okay. All right, I gotta turn my phone off. Oh, yeah. The, the, the weird thing about the initial podcast that you recorded with us, the two of us. Yeah, the pilot episode. The pilot episode. As I like to call it. Yeah. Um, I can't understand why I have a New York Jewish accent. <laughs> you do. I do. You do. You, it's, you, it's very strange. Yes. Very I strange. Yes. I, I was like, right. that, who, they, who is that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, hello, Kai McBride. Oh, we're starting now? Yeah, I, I think, right. I think you're moving your mic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we are at Columbia University in Watson Hall, right? Where yep. we, we all used to have studios as yep. students. No, not me. Oh, where were you? Lions Court. Oh, you had to be different. Mm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry. It was Lions Court. Um, it was, on, remember it was You're that, trailer, that right? it was an, it was not a trailer. It was a double wide. Oh. And, um, I, sorry, I apologize. And it had air conditioning. Oh, that's was. right. Yeah, so I was, um, yeah, yeah. I was in good company with the architects. Yeah. <laughs> and Kai, you're here over the summer teaching, yes? Uh, in a way, yes. I, I'm helping run the uh, summer photography intensive that we run all, every summer for six weeks. Uh, we've got 10 to 12 students who come in and we give them five days a week a real intense photography experience. Oh, what kind of students come to that? Every type. We have like three 19-year-olds from all over the world to people who have had uh, classes with Jen Davis and done stuff at, uh, you know, more advanced things. So we've had everything from 18-year-olds to 40-year-olds wow. so at every different level of 
experience. How does that work out having so many different levels in one class? It's amazing, actually. It's, you know, it's a one room schoolhouse. So you get uh, one person's over here already working in medium format while someone's just has their digital camera and they're thinking about maybe trying that out. And so there's a lot of cross pollination. Hmm. And uh, then, of course, they're meeting with amazing artists and uh, having input from uh, Tom Roma and we bombard them with stuff. So if everyone comes in at their own given level, by the end, they've all gone up, you know, tenfold in their understanding. Sounds great. Yeah, it's amazing. It's very satisfying, actually, to see it happen over just six weeks. What do you do at Columbia? Uh, Technically, my position title is uh, manager of photography facilities for School of the Arts. Um, And then I'm an officer of the university, which means as an officer, I can teach two classes a year, but not more than that. And so in the fall, I teach Photography 2, which is our sort of advanced darkroom class. And in the last couple of years in the spring, I teach Digital Documentary Photography, which is a class that we sort of made up and uh, where we go out with digital cameras and very quickly photograph out in the world. We don't make any prints. We just look at stuff on the screen and hmm. uh, share via Tumblr and other online media sites. You're a graduate of Columbia as well. Yep, I have my MFA from this fine institution. I graduated in 2008. And um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is there any other question that goes along with that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yes. Just, it's just like the two of us. Yeah, I, yes. I, it was, it was, Those uh, are accurate. <laughs> it was interview uh, mistake 101. <laughs> Never ask a yes or no question. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> How did you get interested in photography? When did it happen? Well, I guess how far should I go back? On one hand, uh, when I was in probably first grade, like a lot of people, I was given a camera, but it was unlike people who are like given a Leica or something. I w- we just had uh, Jeffrey Scales here as a guest and he's like, oh, when I was 12, my father gave me a Leica 3F and told me to go out <laughs> on the street. I was like, oh, that's nice. Yes, very <laughs> nice. Uh, so I had like one of those cartridge cameras. I, I had, had a 110. Yeah, like yeah. a point shoot cartridge camera. And I was very excited to uh, try to photograph myself and my friends doing wheelies on our bicycle. Like if I could get the wheel like up in the air right at the time the wheelie was happening, that was going to be great. And I would uh, ride my bicycle to the local, um, it was similar to Sam's Club or something, but whatever it was, it was this is in Oregon. And I dropped the film off and I couldn't wait to get it back to see, you know, the two or three that were actually successful. So that was like my first inclination that photography could be exciting. But then you know, went away for many years. I was just remembering that uh, the first time I saw a black and white contact sheet, some guy, probably a creep, had photographed my uh, older half-sister and like done all these like kind of, not racy portraits of her, but very like glamoury kind of photographs of her and had given her the contact sheets. And I remember looking at these black and white contact sheets and I was eight years old, I think. And so that registered that there was something special that you could do, not just the little five by sevens you would get back from the lab, but there was this idea of contact sheets and seeing multiple little images. Um, but really, if I to trace it back to when I became more serious about photography, I went to um, North Carolina School of the Arts for my last two years of high school. Uh, that's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And you live away from home in the storm for your last two years. And you take uh, drawing sculpture and design and i was terrible at drawing sculpture i was okay but never crazy about and design i also wasn't all that great at but if you got 90 or above in art history which because we're all artists hardly any of us did that was how they winnowed down the field uh 
like three or four of us were able to take photography in our senior year. So mm. they had a dark room, but there was a guy who came in once a week. You would give him your, he gave you a camera to go out and shoot, gave you film. You'd drop it off with him. He'd process the film. I think he would make contact sheets without us and we would choose and then we would make enlargements together mm. kind of thing. But that, when they handed me that camera and it was a Nikon F, um, Suddenly I would start going out. I was always going out on these walks and around Winston-Salem, but now I had the camera and I had a reason to explore into places I probably would have gone otherwise. And everything that I, all of the things that you spend like these, all this time passionately thinking about art and trying to be self-expressive and then looking at your horrible drawings. And meanwhile, your roommate is like in one hour, like whips up a drawing that's amazing. And you've been suffering for, you know, 12 hours and it looks like crap, you know? And all of a sudden, all of that stuff came together and I was able, I, you know, the photographs were working and the stuff I was seeing were, were interesting. And it also helped that I happened to win like the, uh, the regional photo contest for all the high schools around there. My photograph that I took in a abandoned building of a wet leaf on the ground, like won the prize, you know? So it all started to come together for me. And I, I knew when I went away to college that I wanted to find a, a photo program to go to. And uh, where, I mean, where were we planning to go? Because I know you're not originally from North Carolina. Yeah, no, I was born in Hawaii. I had a hippie kind of childhood. We moved all over the U.S. So. Right. But I was in North Carolina at the time, just for those years of high school. But um, yeah, we were there. We moved to California. So that was with your mother and father? Uh, mother, my father, before I was born, he went off and uh, joined sort of, I guess the easiest way to describe it is like a Hare Krishna temple that was on the beach. And so he wasn't around when I was born. He was off uh, chanting and uh, having a good time. <laughs> and then you left uh, when you're how old? Um, we, I was less than two when we left, um, but I spent a lot of summers there because my grandmother lived there and it was sort of the one consistent place in my life. As we moved around, I would spend summers with my grandmother on Kauai. So I, it's like that, you know, the place in your childhood where you can remember when the tree stump was that big and now it's this small, mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. that would be the place was Kauai. Mm -hmm. Although unfortunately a hurricane came through in 1991, Hurricane Aniki blew and it knocked my grandmother's house down and she wound up selling and moving. So I haven't been back to Kauai since 92. She's still there. No, she's not. There. Oh, okay. She, she left for North Carolina. Oh, okay. To so, be near my mother. So are they there now in North Carolina? Uh, yes. Uh, the, oh, well, actually my grandmother's passed away since oh, okay. then. So she's like part of her ashes are on somewhere floating around the ocean near Kauai. And my mother is still in North Carolina. And, and your father's kind of not in the picture? Or? He's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah. Okay. In and out of the picture, I'd say. So uh, what was it that made you move around so much? And, and what, how did you uh, eventually end up in North Carolina? That's a, that's a pretty big difference, right? Hawaii to North Carolina. Yeah, it's huge. Well, I'm sure you guys can appreciate this, both having young kids that I didn't have a lot of say in it, you know, growing <laughs> up. You know, my mother decided to move and... Uh, I you weren't screaming as a toddler, I want to go to North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my mother, I remember at least two or three moves where she would get out the I Ching and like throw the I Ching to make sure it was like a good idea. Really? Yeah, good wow. idea. That we're, when, especially when we moved from, All right. uh, we moved from uh, Ashland, Oregon to the middle of nowhere, also known as Clam Lake, Wisconsin, which, by the way, uh, was right next to Ashland, Wisconsin, where John Tchaikovsky was born. So, oh, really? Yeah, so coincidentally uh -huh. enough. Uh, but yeah, she def I'm def I remember her like explaining to me, she like interpreted the I Ching for me and telling me that this move is going to be good and all that's going to work out. So, Wild. but uh, 
I've asked her to articulate to me why we moved to certain locations, and there were always different reasons. So, for example, when we moved from uh, Oregon to the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin in the middle of the winter and only stayed there for the winter, um, uh, a boyfriend at the time that she was living with, that we were living with, had a friend there who had a job for him if we showed up there. So, so that was reason enough. That was a reason enough. Was like a good reason. Yeah, so we moved there, and then when we... When we left there, we moved to Texas, to Austin, Texas, because that's where my father was living. And I I'd said, you know, all these other guys are great, but, you know, I'm seven years old. I'd like to meet my real father. And so we moved to Austin, Texas for that reason. From there, you know, they were, oh, they, we went to Hawaii from there and then from Hawaii to North Carolina because my as you might imagine, the after being apart all that time, the, it did not work out for those two, for my mother and father to stay together. And so she she wound up in North Carolina because... A friend of hers was working at a restaurant there in Highlands, North Carolina, and said, "Come here. There's, it's beautiful, and I've got a job for you." So, I think there's a lot of it was opportunity, like people she knew or things that happened, and and I was such a gypsy back then. And since coming of age and being an adult, I've really only lived a couple of places. I've lived many places in Boston area, moving around, but then Boston. New York and North Carolina are the only places I've lived since I turned eighteen. So, I mean, it sounds like your mother was. You know, trying to figure it out, right? Raising you and, yeah, and your siblings? Yes. No, no, I was, I was just the two of us at okay. that point. So I was like, yeah, single mom on the move. And she later apologized to me. I, I think when I was in high school, she like kind of broke down and apologized that, you know, we had such a tough child because I was always the new kid and I was also a hippie. So I'd have like long hair and mm. show up in these small towns and, you know, not have any friends and uh, have to adapt or whatever. But I, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I maybe, you know, if we want to be romantic about it, it's part of what made me become really observant about stuff around me. I don't think that's romantic at all. I yeah, think, I think that kind around. of isolation makes you an observer. Yeah. yeah, absolutely makes you an observer. And an observer is a photographer. Yeah, and, and things were always unfamiliar because you'd go from, you know, Hawaii, Honolulu, Hawaii, to uh, the mountains of North Carolina, to you know Mississippi, living you know near the bayou and everything. Like all those places are so different, and the people are different. And uh, you know, this is before the Starbucks and McDonald's took over everything, and things looked very differently different. in all those places. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't regret it at all. I'm I'm glad I got to move around a lot. I, I still have that wanderlust. It's tough to be in New York. I've now lived in Bushwick, Brooklyn, longer than I've lived anywhere else in my entire life. Yeah, yeah, I've had that similar experience when I was in Jersey City. That was uh, for twelve years. That's the longest I lived anywhere, right, mm-hmm. in any time in my yeah. life. Yeah, and maybe that allows for these longer photo projects because you mm-hmm. can actually go keep going back to you the can same keep place. Keep going to the same place yeah, and keep revisiting after yeah, yeah. seasons and all that. Sure, sure. Yeah, so it'll be a new home. And then college was where. College wound up being the museum school in Boston, and uh, I chose it very purposely because I had just had those two years of intensive foundation, like I said, of all those classes. And a lot of the colleges, even Cooper Union, which I had uh, looked at here in New York, was the only other real choice. They would make you do all those foundation courses again. It just seemed like uh, going backwards to me. So the museum school was open. You you could take film. You could take photography. You could do whatever you wanted and make up your own curriculum. So that seemed perfect for me. And that's why um, I wound up there. At that time, were you looking at any photographers that were sort of leading you or? I had... I don't, the, the photographer who most really inspired me getting when I got started was this uh, British photographer, Simon Larbalastier, who no one probably knows by name, but Never he did it. all of the 
uh, covers and all the album covers for the Pixies. And he was shooting with like type 55 Polaroid film and they were, you know, solarized and, you know, gritty or whatever. And I thought, oh, if I could only make photographs like, like him. <laughs> Any peel apart? Uh, transfers? Yeah, yeah. All that. Well, no transfers, but okay. it, it definitely had like he solarized it and it, you know, he would photograph like a stuffed monkey next to a letter, press letter. And there's like oil and stuff. And I just like, I, I was like, trying to figure out how he did that. Right. But then when I got to the museum school, it just so happened that the, um, it was the time that the traveling show of Robert Maplethorpe was at mm. the ICA there. And that, you know, completely blew me away because mm -hmm. I saw nothing like that before. Not that I was particularly trying to emulate it, but it just seeing, seeing those dye transfers, seeing the, you know, the luscious black and white prints, it, it changed my uh, understanding of the other thing you could do, but not really. I think maybe because being an artist and going to art school, you know, you, you weren't looking at much at the history of photography so much as just trying stuff. And, you know, maybe everyone heard that the Starn twins went to the museum school. So at some point while you were there, everyone had to cut up their photographs and tape them back together with scotch tape, you know, to be like the Starn twins. But there wasn't much uh, influence from the canon, as I would say. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of that work is so technically intensive. And I know you mm. have a very direct relationship with the technical aspects of photography in mm -hmm. terms of cameras and things like that. But your work doesn't look anything like that. It doesn't seem to be, have been influenced by any of that. So when mm -hmm. you're at, at the school there talking to professors and other students, did you find yourself making that kind of work or were you already heading towards a different direction? No, I would say the first two years, I was only there for two years, I should point that out. And then I dropped out. And the two years I was there, um, I was in massive experimental mode. I would, I was, you know, doing color, doing black and white. I, you know, everything that I would cringe at now and not let a photo <laughs> one student do like dribbling the developer on to make patterns and doing all that stuff. And it, you know, that's exactly what I was trying. And uh, I would even, I remember bringing a tray of water into the color dark room and like floating the paper in there so that the light would go through the water and make patterns with the image and be soft and focusy and blurry, you know? That, that falls under the heading of uh, what I tell my students, every photo one student has to make at some point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I did all of that and then, uh, and then partially because, um, uh, financial reasons you know i started looking at the bill for the museum school my mother uh who worked as a hostess and uh, didn't make a lot of money couldn't help uh fund my education and my father wasn't helping either and so i realized that to spend fifteen thousand dollars a year to be you know using the facilities there didn't make a lot of sense and i i dropped out and i planned on going to work in film i thought i could like i enjoyed working in film and movies and i thought i would go off and do that and just as i was about to leave i fell in love with the first time with the woman who was at the museum school and so i decided that i couldn't leave boston just yet i actually packed up moved away and then came back and while during that summer i was away a job opening came up at the museum school to run their, um, you know, to run the sort of the facilities on the weekend and also the cage where all the equipment was. Mm. And like a lot of college students, Saturday mornings, everyone was hung over or whatever. No one came in. And I had hours just sitting in the cage with all that equipment. And I, I really credit that year of working there as being where I learned most of the technical stuff because I would pull out every camera, I would read the manuals, I would spend a lot of time using the stuff that no one else used, like no one wanted to use an 8x10 camera. I couldn't afford to use it, but I would get paper and do paper negatives with 8x10. And that was really the, 
the time that I learned almost everything uh, technical because there wasn't an emphasis on that at all at the, at the museum. But you were not a student. I was no longer a student, right. but it was better than being a student because, uh, I mean, I was working for nothing. I was It was like $196 a week after taxes. But I think I worked it out that I was, they were now paying me the exact amount that I had been paying them, except for I had keys to everything and 24-hour access. So I that one year, the year I worked there, I got at least as much work done, if not more, than the two years I was a student. I learned how to use the offset press. I started using the computers to make film for offset printing, you know, drawings and photographs. Uh, I had a very productive year. Now, you also mentioned that um, you were interested in film and, and that you decided that if it wasn't going to be photography, then it would be film. Mm. And I know you have a big interest in music. You just mentioned the Pixies. and. Mm -hmm. um, was there a particular filmmakers that, or films that you were looking at that you thought, because I'm also interested in the fact of how that happened quite a long time ago, and here you are, your new body of work that you're working on are based on the, the idea of the Panavision frame, right? Mm -hmm. So here we are back to kind of a cinematic approach mm -hmm. or a cinematic look to the photographs, uh, which can, we can talk yeah. about later. But. Um, film, uh, part, maybe part of the reason of an interest in film was... Uh, on my maybe even not from my mother and my father were always uh, very interested in cinema. So we had we were the first uh, first people we knew to buy a Betamax. You know, we had like a Betamax. Wow. You know, before v VHS came out, sure. and we would uh, buy or rent movies and watch them on Betamax. And my father briefly worked. Uh, he was trying to put together videos for his businesses, and he would work at the local cable access show. So I had been around editing and you know video and filmmaking and when I was at North Carolina School of the Arts the head of the program there Clyde Fowler who was a, a big presence in our lives um, he would always bring up films that we should see and look at and he was a big fan of David Lynch and when uh, uh, he would always mention things about David Lynch and the imagery and the you know the this um, the all of the um, psychological background that goes into that, right? And it was also a very big deal that Twin Peaks came out at that exact time. And so every week we were all glued to Twin Peaks to see what happened. And that was partially the influence for wanting to do film when, and you know, the relation to photography. Uh, and I did a lot of it while I was there at the museum school. But the I think a lot of people find this out is when you're a filmmaker, you have to have a crew. You've got to have people. And they've, you know, you're either helping them on their film or they're helping you on yours. And with photography, you just need the camera. You don't need that crew of people, at least unless you're uh, Gregory Crutzen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was... But was also heavily influenced by David Lynch. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. At the time that you were at the, at the museum school, were you aware, did it matter to you that there was this other sort of world out there, the gallery world, the museum world, artists, you know, trying to make a living as artists and things like that. Was that something? Because I know that going through School of Visual Arts, it's like on the, on the, on the graduate level, um, we didn't think about that stuff. We were just learning the medium and we were excited to be learning the medium and then we were just going to be photographers. We didn't yeah. even know what that meant. Right. Yeah. Uh, we could make a living out of it. We knew that there was a commercial world. We mm -hmm. knew there were books. And right? we knew that there were books, right. but until you know a certain point in our stay at the, the School of Visual Arts, it was like, yeah, we're just photographers and it's fun. You know, This is what we're doing. And it was kind of like that yeah. kind of innocence. I'm wondering if I, the museum school was any different than that. No, exact same experience, mm -hmm. um, except for maybe being in Boston, there wasn't even the possibility really. I mean, 
I mentioned that show at the ICA. I think that was the only photography show I remember being there, you know, that everyone went to. Mm. And uh, maybe there was a showing of um, Struth or something at the SMFA, you know, the uh, SMFA, that's the school, just the Museum of Fine mm. Arts in Boston. But there was very little of that. So you'd be, and there were no galleries. I can't remember going to any galleries. You know, that, that wasn't even in the equation. And um, never thought about any commercial aspect of it. It was you were out there making the work and making the prints and, and not thinking about it too much. Um, I remember getting it. We got a call. We would get calls like a lot of schools get with someone saying, oh, I want a headshot or maybe looking for a, you know, a photographer for this. And, and one time I... I kind of broke down. I said, "All right, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do this this job." And it was a cellist who needed some like she wanted gritty urban shots of her and her cello like playing on a roof or playing near with some graffiti in the background or I something. I think I've done that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I did it, and you know, I think it paid fifty dollars, which I thought was pretty incredible at the time. But I also hated it. I mean, yeah. I hated like showing her the contact sheets and having her decide what she liked or not, or if she judged. liked, yeah, she, <laughs> I was like, this is not for me. So I was never interested in being a commercial photographer and the gallery world. Yeah. Never even entered the consciousness. I, I don't remember a single faculty member ever mentioning anything about it. Uh, it's also, it's also interesting to me, this connection to Boston, because, you know, the idea of the, the Boston school was there, mm. people that included uh, Nan Golden and uh, uh, Taboo and all this small group, they were considered, I mean, I know that there was no such thing. P.L. DeCorsia was a member. Mm. It, it wasn't like a, an actual school. It was just like an idea of a group of people together working. And But I think at the undergraduate level, we, you know, students are still not exposed to that other world. So it's still kind of separated. I think that that comes into play a lot more once you get into the, the graduate setting where it's more you know, perhaps career-based or, or uh, there's, a, there's a greater need for uh, exhibitions and, and publications and things like that. But because this is around the same time, I mean, this is, we're talking about the 80s into the 90s, mm. right? Yep. Yeah. I didn't even know the Boston School was the Boston right? School at that time. I mean, maybe that they got their name afterwards or something, you know, or they were considered a school afterwards, but yeah, I was just curious about those that. Those people weren't on my radar at all. Right. And uh but I think they part weren't of, on a lot of part, it, part of it is, you know, willful ignorance. Uh, while I was there, very famously, and I believe he still teaches it, um, Jim Dow teaches at the museum school, mm -hmm. and he has uh, a history of photography class that mm -hmm. everyone praises very highly and, like, people die to get into. Mm -hmm. And I think he was on sabbatical my second year when I would have taken it, and then I never got to take it. So people would come down and, and mention things like, oh, yeah, Edward Weston and the pepper and all this stuff. And I, I, you know, I just I didn't know what they were talking about, so hmm. I wasn't exposed to it. Yeah, you know? I think I remember Nan Golan came to speak at the School of Visual Arts in our last year. I think that's when she sort of broke out with the Ballad of Sexual Dependency. Maybe about 1990. Are we that old? Yeah, I think we are. <laughs> really? You're yeah. that dependent. I don't, she, maybe I, I, the book wasn't out and she just showed the work. Possibly. Um, that's possibly. Yeah. yeah. So I don't remember she that. She was okay. just just coming onto the scene, I believe, in 90. Anyone's looking at his notes right now. <laughs> yeah, right. When, looking at when did you get started? And he's got a highlighter on I some know. of these things. I know. So I, I, yeah. I'm waiting for those questions. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, what a, <laughs> when did you get started doing the, the tech work, the, the web design, the software work? Uh, yeah. Well... So, yeah, the transition from the museum school was an important one. Uh, as I mentioned, I got I learned how to use the offset press there. So I was uh, you know aware of cyan, magenta, yellow, black separations for color printing and all these things. And um, the guy who ran the offset press there is this amazing man, uh, Carl Sesto. 
and a photographer had approached him that he had once uh, printed a poster for him or something. And he said, I'm starting this new company and we're going to be doing digital printing on an Iris uh, inkjet printer. And uh, if people don't know what an Iris inkjet printer was, it was the much the precursor to our Epson and everything else we have now. There's only four colors, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. The printer cost $150,000 mm. uh, and uh, had a big drum that you would tape the paper on. And the drum would spin around at a rapid pace. And um, anyways, he was starting a new company. He had uh, his his original company was called Palladio, and they did machine-coated platinum palladium paper, and people would buy this amazing uh, platinum palladium paper from them. Um, but uh, Rob Steinberg, who uh, started that company with his wife, Sura, they also uh, wanted to get into the digital realm, and he knew he could not afford to buy a $150,000 printer for himself. And this is 1993, where Photoshop, you could barely open a 10 megabyte file. Mm -hmm. And to print a 30 by 40 on the iris, you needed at least a 100 or 200 megabyte file. So we had to get these uh, Silicon Graphics Unix workstations running this Alias Eclipse software, which is you know another Unix program. And the workstations were another $40,000 each. The software was $40,000. And then we had an a, um, amazing... Uh, Howtech, I think Howtech uh, scanner, a drum scanner that was another, you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars. Blah blah. Anyways, it was to put all this together. The only way you could afford to do it was to start a company, which uh, he called New American Platina Type Company, a very long name, which yes. has now been shortened to NAPC. And I was the first uh, real employee. It was just Rob Steinberg and myself, and this inkjet printer and these Silicon Graphics Unix workstations, and hours and hours like 80 90 hour weeks sitting there trying to get this thing this is before icc color profiling it was basically like using an excel spreadsheet to try to figure out how to adjust all of the color ranges to make beautiful prints but we made portfolios for sally mann and uh, we printed for a lot of people on that but there was a lot of downtime so going back to your question about how i got into the tech imagine sitting at this silicon graphics unix workstation with a shell trying to automate things reading about shell scripting and uh, it'd be like eight o'clock at night. You had this print going for another 45 minutes where you'd rush off to the airport to, to FedEx something to the photographer. And I would sit there and read. And over the course of the years I worked there, we transitioned from a very expensive service that no photographer could afford to selling these workstations and this solution to the graphic arts industry. Oh, wow. And uh, I taught myself C programming. I taught all myself all this stuff during this time. And now, were you photographing at that time? Uh, I was. You know, one of the great things, benefits of being there was that I had uh, access to the scanner and this inkjet printer for free and also access to, they had what they called the reject piles of this platinum palladium paper, which meant it had like one little flaw in it somewhere, like a flick in it. And there, I was making... I, it's kind of horrible to think of now, but I would use it to make contact sheets. <laughs> you know, I've had these incredible like contact sheets uh, on. Uh, Do you still have those? Yeah, I wow. still have them, and they're like gorgeous. You know, like my two and a quarter test strip on this <laughs> platinum palladium paper. But um, yeah, I was still photographing, although of course it was a challenge because, like I said, I was at work, you know, eighty nine hours a week. So I was doing a lot of uh, setup work at home on the weekends and at night, and photographing. Started photographing at that time for the first time with. A five by seven uh, Deerdorf camera that I bought. So I was, mm -hmm. I was using five by seven for years because of that. That camera. Now this is where what what this geographic is, location are we in? It's right up just out on the outskirts of Boston. Of Boston. Medford. So you're photographing the landscape around Boston at that time. Or? A little bit, but like I, I was some, but 
fewer landscapes and more, uh, and partially influenced by Rob Steinberg, who did a lot of still life work mm -hmm. and turned beyond to uh, uh, Sudek and, um, of course, looking at Edward Weston by then, I was doing a lot of just work at home in the apartment. Yeah, like with natural light coming in, my kitchen window had great light and I would was hanging things up by strings. And, you know, like a lot of people do uh, at one point in your life, you cruise through uh, uh, junk shops and go to uh, antique stores and you find something. You have no idea what it is. Be like, ooh, this looks cool. It'll probably photograph well, you know, like yeah. what, you know, yeah, yeah. old bottles with uh, vanilla beans in them and whatever, you know. So I was doing a lot of stuff like that at that time. Now, you, you mentioned uh, Weston and Sudek. Where where were you seeing images by them? Because, I mean, now I tell my students, look up Sudek, and they just look it up. You know, it's like no big deal. But in that at that time, it was, it was a little bit more difficult to find those images. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it was before the World Wide Web. And, um, well, I got a lucky again that Rob Steinberg had an incredible library. library and so yeah. I'd go over to his house and he'd like, he handed me a Sudek book. He's like, mm -hmm. check this guy out. And, you know, mm -hmm. and he had uh, photographed in Prague himself. And I was just, you know, blown away. I had no idea. I don't know. Now you're a, an avid book buyer. Uh, oh, yeah. Boy, yeah. Yeah. It's a disease. <laughs> it's the one thing you can give your permission, yourself permission to buy. Well, unlike the two of you, I don't have a kid. So I could, <laughs> I have even more reasons why I can. Uh, I sneak them in. Yeah. I have to. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a hard habit to break. I, I know. Yeah, they show up in the mail. What's this? Oh, um, oh I guess I ordered that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, That's yeah, it. Yeah, That's yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. One of my prizes was a couple of years ago. I found the. The Prague Panoramic book, the original oh, sure. Sudek Prague, Lovely book, that, yeah. oh, the, that gravure, gravure printing, you know, can't beat it. It's funny because when I first saw those books, they were at places like the Second Sunday Camera Show, which was a uh, a, a place that you went in Wayne, New Jersey, mm -hmm. at a fire hall, wasn't at a it? fire hall, and they would be, you know, every possible piece of all the photographic equipment you could imagine. That's why I got mm -hmm. my first uh, um, enlarger when I bought one. Uh, that you know. Before then, I was given enlargers, but um, mm. I bought my first one there. And then somebody would have a table, and next to the camera, there was there was the Prague Panoramic book, and it mm. was like, wow, eighty dollars—that's too much money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know? like, yeah. There, there was an equivalent thing in Boston. I forget the name of it, but that would be a couple times a year. They would have these events where all the people would come sell used cameras and books and everything. And that's how I got my wound up with this five by seven Deerdorf. I wasn't looking for a five by seven, but I'd completely fallen in love with uh, Deerdorf's, um, partially through Jim Dow, who once lent me his eight by 10 Deerdorf for the summer so I could try to copy it. Mm. Um, my friend Ruben Cox, who I think you guys yeah, know. Yeah, Ruben, sure. Yeah, yeah Ruben uh, I had heard that when he was at, uh, at Cooper that he had built himself a camera. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, Ruben did, I can build one too. And, uh, but I wanted to copy the Deerdorf and Jim Dow was like, sure, I have two of them. You can borrow this one for the summer. And of course you look at it and you realize how insane that <laughs> how beautiful, every yeah, piece how, is. Oh yeah, how beautiful yeah. it is. So I, in the back of my mind, I wanted a Deerdorf. I thought a four by five and I was at one of these things and there, this guy had a five by seven with four by five back. And I was like, five by seven, what's that? You know? mm. You're out in Brooklyn now, right? Oh yes. Oh, that's a yes/no question. <laughs> <laughs> I had a follow-up. Okay. You're out. You're out by uh, 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 Newtown New Creek. Creek. Newtown yeah. Creek, yeah. and that's one of your your big projects right now. Yes, although I, got, I have to find a way to end it because it's been going on for so long. I, but what's long? What do you mean by long? Um, I took the first 
exploratory photograph in January of 2009. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah it's been a while. I bring that up because I remember being at a talk, um, a very cryptic talk by the photographer Lee Friedlander, where he was asked, um, as this was, he had already published American Monument. And, um, and he was asked, well, do you, um, do you photograph monuments anymore? And he said, he said, no. And there was a pause. And he said, unless it's a good one. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So this idea of when do you finish a project is something that photographers certainly ask themselves regularly because, you know, you're working and you're finding out more things. Sometimes it happens, I think, just all of a sudden, you know, it's done. And then sometimes yeah. it's like, okay, what do I do now? And, and I often see people change cameras to try to reinvent the project and that's mm. usually a sign that it's time to go kind of a thing yeah this is the first project i ever had that was located in one particular place so that was kind of interesting at least when i started out it's gone through it went through phases of discovery like first of all newtown creek is very difficult to find a way to get to the banks of it everywhere because it's in this industrial landscape and a lot of it was discovery and decide you know making that decision Oh, is this trespassing or yeah. am I yeah. just, yeah. you know, just going along the bank, you know? And so the first year was a lot of that, just being amazed that I found yet another way to get into this section that I'd seen on the aerial Google, you know, map. And now I was actually standing there and seeing what was there. And then through the seasons, think, seeing things change and all of that. But a real big change happened in the second year or maybe the third year I was doing it as I got a rowboat, this mm. little plastic rowboat, mm. which... Um, uh, by luck, uh, one of Tom Roma's uh, neighbors upstate, this uh, you know summer camp, had let it float away, and and he grabbed onto it. And uh, uh, if you know anything, if you look up Newtown Creek, it's since I started the project, it's been officially declared a Superfund site. Oh, but it wasn't when you started. It wasn't when I started. No, really? it was just dirty. Why were they waiting for? Me? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm sure like someone had to get in line or something. My but uh, is that when they installed the the fa the fans, the underwater fans to push no, it out? No, some of that was already there. I don't know what they changed, but it, no, the I think the underwater fans have been there for a long time. They just yeah. couldn't turn them on because the amount of stuff that was at the bottom. But getting in that boat made a big big change because for up to that point, it was all about finding a way along the shore and, and being more about the land, looking out towards the water. And now all of a sudden I'm on in this boat and uh, floating along and uh, finding things, other things that are floating, finding things that I could never have seen otherwise. And it really changed the project for me. And uh, that's probably why I'm not done with it yet is some, I, so I can only go out in the summer and I can only go out on a non-windy day so I don't get sprayed with toxic water. Yeah. And, uh, and so that that changed it. But also any long term project, I believe you you can get bored with something, but you can also have new revelations while you're doing it. So Absolutely, your approach, yeah. your, maybe you started, I started uh, photographing uh, something down in North Carolina, uh, the kudzu in a different way. And it looking at those photographs made me realize something I should change about the way I was photographing Newtown Creek. So there, there is some push and pull, but who knows? And now I have to edit through all the contact sheets and it, will I just dismiss everything from the first two years because it's not the, you know, the current view of it or will it all mix together? I, you know, I have no idea. Or, yet. you know, will it end up being two different projects or something like that? I mean, yeah. I know, I know with the Mars Canal, with, with, with I've been photographing, it's a canal that cut through New Jersey from the Delaware river to the Hudson river, basically, and it transported coal. 
I, I originally started it out as a, a much shorter term project. It was just going to be Jersey City because in Jersey City, I found it really interesting because it was... Um, Which is where you live. Right. Where well, I, I lived, I lived, I lived that yeah, at the yeah, time. At the time, yeah. Uh, it was the last open space. So it became uh, places for affordable housing or places or football fields for high schools or uh, large you know storage areas for, for cargo, things like that. So it was in some ways still marked by those areas. Hmm. And then I decided to, to expand it a little farther, and I, I realized um, it still existed in parts of western New Jersey, so I started to, to follow it through more. But, um, but it's, it's changed quite a bit. Uh, I have this heavy concentration of, of photos from Jersey City that are, are really about one kind of thing, and then as I go far, farther and farther away and into areas where there's still a park, beautiful parks with, with runs and walks and, and, and tourist sites and things like that, it's 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 uh, difficult to figure out how these photos go together and cuts through neighborhoods and there are people in photos and things like that. Well, this is where I think, you know, landscape studies are like an interesting kind of background to the kind of work that I think the Morris Canal and certainly the Newtown uh, Creek uh, project um, uh, are involved with. You know, this is this idea that there's this element of time in the photographs time in the sense of the time passing from season to season and then uh, from year to year and how the subject matter is in fact organic it continues to change and grow and you know you photograph a place and then you go back and it's been and they've cut all the trees down and all of a sudden it's like oh it's a whole new different place and i think that that that's what makes these projects so rich is that they do have these levels these different levels of information in the photographs. Yeah, so, uh, although sometimes I wonder if it's more interesting for the photographer than it's going to be for the viewer because you become an expert on this area and, and a lot of times in the work it's not going to come across. I mean, you show somebody a photograph, you're like, no, you don't understand. See how now you can see the the uh, Freedom Tower in the background and they cut all these trees down. They're like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, like, but, you but know, you're excited, but... Uh, but, uh, but, but it's like, I mean, yeah. that's the, the always the question of who's your audience. Yeah. I mean, are, are we making pictures for an audience? If so, who is that audience? Because not everyone's going to be interested. Oh, I mean, in absolutely. I, I show this one photo a lot from the, the canal of a, a parking lot that takes a funny turn in the lot because that's what the canal did. And of course, I'm the only one who would ever even think about that. Or somebody <laughs> else who's interested in the way, I mean, I, I think we sometimes, you know, forget that there's other kinds of knowledge out there. It's like you have the photographic knowledge of that place and there are people who have the historical knowledge of that place. So they might see that and pick up on it. It's granted that we're speaking to a very small crowd perhaps in our in our photographs always. I mean, and, and there are photographs that are meant to be consumed by large numbers of people. And then there are photographs that are meant to be consumed by a very small number of people. And um, I get a lot of blank stares when I show my photographs of, you know, I've been working on a project for a long time in, um, in Secaucus, New Jersey very small place called Snake Hill. Mm. And there's a lot of history to the place. And I'm trying to figure out how to get that history to come across in the photographs without illustrating them. I showed the photographs to the Secaucus town historian, and he picked up on all the clues, mm. you know, without even having to tell him. He knew. So again, the question of audience, who's our audience? I mean... Yeah, but also, I mean, what are you... What do you hope that the project's going to be about, you know? So. What do you hope the project is going to be about? I mean, Newtown Creek... Turned that one on him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Obviously, it's not. I'm not done with it yet, but what's come across, and it's also in some other work that I do, is this, um, you know, the simple way to say it would be like man versus nature, right? Mm -hmm. And here in, in Newtown Creek, the the hand of man has had a very rough, you know, a rough hand on nature, and yet... 
there's all these trees and there's these clear crabs and there's stuff that somehow manages to survive even though it's this toxic wasteland, right? So it's a beleaguered landscape where, you know, the nature is coming through. But I'm this whole idea of landscape photography is such a such a broad category. But I'm always interested in showing the man-made and showing the hand of man in it, even if there are no people particularly in the photographs. And so a lot of that stuff about, you know, the historical background, I mean, there's so much history there. You know, these pilings used to be a bridge and all of that. It's probably going to be secondary to the fact that overall, when you look at the photographs, you're going to get the sense of place and get the sense of, you know, damage or loss and rebirth and like how resilient is nature and all of that. So. And also, like um, when you if you can check out the photographs on your website, um, some of www.kymcbride.com. Well, you know, because I think that's a good place to look at them um, as you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> the but, levels just went off the chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah so sorry about we, that. We yeah. will also post uh, Kai's website, in yeah. case you couldn't hear it through the distortion, yeah. Yeah. Uh, on, uh, on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and the blog, which we'll all announce at the end. But um, many of these photographs of those sort of, you know, as you say, hand of man kind of uh, signs, are beautiful. I mean, you've made beautiful photographs, and the prints are luscious. And I've seen mm. some of the prints. Yeah, and, no, there's uh, definitely they're full of light, and you know, it's it's Robert Adams' uh, sort of big discovery when he went out to make photographs of the things that he hated. Mm-hmm. But then the photographs yeah, were the beautiful. Clear cutting and all that. Yeah, yeah, and as he couldn't, he kept coming back with beautiful photographs, and he recognized that. Well, but you have to make beautiful photographs. There's some obligation because you need to seduce your viewer into actually mm-hmm. looking at it. And if it's banal or not interesting, no one's going to spend the time to see what's in there, right? Yeah, I was, so. like, I was thinking, it's like your photographs are not trying to, you know, it, you wouldn't put them next to, you know, save the Newtown Creek, you know, right. poster. It wouldn't work that it's way. Not yeah. It's not activism. Yeah, it's not activism. It's not activism. It's not propaganda. It's not. It's, you know, I think that's why we're often called, you know, documentary style. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. You mentioned that back in September 2000. This is also from the website. Oh, now he's digging up where you have it. Where you have a detail. <laughs> where this are is you? a very detailed uh, bio that yeah, he's yeah. got there. It's going personal through. history. Yeah. Personal history. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And you talked about this process of um, in 2000. I started a semi-daily photo journal using a cheap, low-res digital camera. Mm, yeah. The project is a huge personal success, generating two, uh, 2,411 images that document a very important year of my life. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I had just moved from, so I was living in Boston and that job had transitioned to the point where I was actually no longer doing anything creative in terms of visual art or photography. I was now uh, working at MIT in the Laboratory for Computer Science and keeping their Unix workstations up and running. So You my, did that too? Yeah, yeah. My life completely changed. I was no longer, I was all about... Uh, you know, being a sysadmin and, uh, you know, I, the website photo.net, which some people still go sure. to, is an amazing forum. Yes, yes. It was located in the laboratory of computer science and it was this ancient machine and every once in a while it would go down and I was one of three people who knew how to reboot it properly. Wow. So that was like, oh, the machine's down. Quick, photo.net <laughs> is down. And uh, <laughs> Philip Greenspun was like, you know, oh my God, get it back up. So, and it was, it was really this whole esoteric incantation to get this machine back up. But anyways, I, in the year 2000, maybe it was the turning of the century. Also, if you worked 
worked in IT at that point, there was this thing called Y2K, which everyone freaked mm. out about, but mm. it actually was an incredible amount of work for us. So we, I was kind of burned out and I realized I hadn't been photographing at all at that point, I hadn't been playing music, I hadn't been doing anything creative other than uh, finding, like writing scripts and you know making programs to make computers run better. So I left New York and I moved I'm sorry, I left Boston, I moved to New York, I left, moved to Brooklyn, uh, Williamsburg at the time, and uh, I wanted to just freelance, do some freelance computer work and figure out how to reconnect with photography and reconnect with music. And um, I had had years when I was working at uh, NAPC where I would have a way to make output. I would shoot this film and I would scan it at work and I would make these iris inkjet prints or like I said, these amazing contact prints on platinum palladium paper. And now I was out and I could process film in the bathtub or whatever, but I, I didn't have a dark room to work in. And, and now I'm in Brooklyn and I, I had the itch to photograph, but no way to do it. And, and this is what I was, what I was feeling. And I was walking down the street on Bedford Avenue one day and this uh, young woman in front of me all of a sudden took this little plastic tiny like one by three inch thing out of her out of her bag and she pointed it and pushed a button and it made a beep and I, I stopped her and asked her what you know what is this thing she's like oh it's a pen cam and uh it was one of these very first low super low res digital cameras and it what took, year years are we talking about this 2000 it was early 2000 like september okay. or october of 2000 september of 2000 it had nothing but a counter on the back that would count up how many exposures you had made you mm -hmm. know one two three a digital display and then it had a very crude viewfinder and a button on top. And the I think the resolution is 480, you know, it's like 480 pixels wide or whatever. I thought, this is great. I can photograph with this thing and just look at it on my, uh, you know, my little laptop. And, and I decided to make a project out of it, which was I would photograph with it every day. I would not edit the photographs in any way. So no Photoshop, no correct color corrections, nothing. And I would uh, post on my website the results, uh, unedited, unsequenced, just whatever I happened to do that day. So some days I'd make, you know, 20 pictures, some days I'd make four. And I very soon learned what the limitations of, were of this camera and that you could flare it out and do crazy colors and do all that stuff. And so, like I said, it was that first year in Brooklyn, first year exploring New York City. And I had this thing with me the whole time, constantly mm -hmm. uh, posting and, and thinking about it. And uh, using my computer savvy to uh, like add stuff to it and, and, and get up to a website. But um, it was an incredible experience of, of having that year to photograph that way. It was interesting to me because the year 2000, I, I believe this is a little bit of Columbia trivia, but I think it was that year that Preston Resigno, who was at Columbia, was one of the first photographers that I knew that used a digital camera. It was a Ricoh. He, he was mm -hmm. gone for that by then, I think. He was gone by then? I think he graduated in 99. 99. So very close like that. to that so same time. It was like the first time yeah. a digital camera was used um, yeah. at this school for an, an MFA yes. you know, yeah. uh, thesis exhibition. I think mm. 2000 was the same year you and I picked up digital cameras. That's right. Yeah. And I bought my first camera from Preston. Mm. He right. sold yes. me a used Nikon, <laughs> 1.9 megapixels, mm. charged me a lot of money for it, which I told him about. He knows about this. Yeah. Um, but it was that same, yeah, we started using, again, as, as a way of like, not that we thought that there was any kind of a world of digital photography. It was just a thing that was in the sort I, of I never thought of, it, thought of it as a, a primary tool. I no. just thought, what can I do with this? What can I yeah. do? Yeah. I was thinking about 
a very similar situation, which is, okay, I'm graduating from, you know, from school now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out into the world. I don't, I had to give up my dark room. I'm living in an apartment where I cannot set up a dark room. How do I keep myself photographing? Mm. Oh, this is a thing that, again, it was this sort of magic little trick that you could have this little tiny camera and then you could print it out on, on a Nepson little printer and, you mm. know, non-archival. And that's how I made my thesis show. Oh yeah, so your thesis show was with that. Was as well. all digital. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a it was a combination of scanned images and my own digital images. Mm-hmm. But I, in Lions Court, I sat there and I taught myself how to do this thing because again, when I was at school, now of do visual, you cover all of this in your podcast that you guys already did? Uh, I don't know. So. We we didn't talk about right, shooting good. digital at Columbia. Uh-huh. No, so no, we're bringing we didn't up new information. New information. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. But um, when I was at School of Visual Arts, you know no one was talking about digital. It was like, it yeah. will never catch on. It's too expensive. You mentioned the expense of making a good print. Well, I'm probably one of the few, mm-hmm. like of 500 people that uh, spent the 500 or $600 to buy the Apple Quick Take, the first, oh my goodness, you know, yes. that first little digital camera sure. that Apple came out with yes. that was, it looked like, I don't know, a pancake or something. It was yeah. like the weirdest shape, made no sense at all. But I had one of those, which was wow. Basically the same as this pen cam. It was like yeah. 480 by whatever. It was this tiny little ridiculous thing. And the 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 reason for not doing any kind of editing, or was it more about? Did you like the aesthetic of the image, or was it more about? No, that was a bit. Of, that was this idea of of a discipline or something like coming up with parameters. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. if you could, I mean, I couldn't see what I was getting because like I said you pushed the button and it would just increment the number to say you got the next thing so while so there was out, no preview so there's no preview there's mm. nothing that was, so I already I already knew that I wasn't going to be able to make decisions that way so what would prevent me from just trying to like take 10 around something and hope I got something good right. well rather than do that I thought let's let's take that out of the equation completely and if sometimes I accidentally took two pictures of the same thing cuz the like the button would pit, you know stick or something then i'd post both of them that way it was just as a way of having uh, limitations on the, on the project hmm. and uh, you know i found that the audience who was the audience like i probably like five friends and my mother were like checking <laughs> to see what i was doing but 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 just this idea that I'm going to have these set of limitations. And uh, if I didn't fin- if I didn't take any pictures that day, you know, shame on me, you know, right, that right. kind of thing. I want to like fast forward a little bit. You met Stephen Shore mm-hmm. when you took a, um, a master's class? Yeah. Was he at, was this a Bard? That's a Bard. Okay. Yep. Uh, when was that? That was 2000 and uh, maybe 2004, I believe, or 2005. I really didn't know much about Stephen before before I took that class with him, although an ex-girlfriend was going to the BARD program. She was doing the BARD summer program. Yeah. And I I guess I, I Googled who was up there or something and saw, even though he's not involved in that summer program, I saw his name was associated with it. And they had just re-released, uh, was it the deluxe version of American Surfaces or something? I can't mm. remember. I we'll have to edit that in with the correct information. But <laughs> yeah, we'll look it up. Yeah, yeah. But they just released one of his books, and he also just had a show. Uh, he had just had a show at Gagosian or something, and and I remember I was reading his introduction to the book, and he talked in there something about things that he's articulated later. I think in his Nature of Photography book, um, he talked about the difference of standing in one spot versus another and watching like a telephone pole move across, which is, you know, this also related to cinema, the ideas you're moving things mm-hmm. in the foreground moving. And, and uh, I realized that a lot of the stuff he was talking about were things, the concerns I had had and where I was, how I was photographing. And I was using, 
a large format camera and he was and it just seemed like the right person to try to to look up and that's when i discovered that they had this amazing masterclass uh possibility at bard where you contact any any faculty i think up there and you say i'd like to do you know like an independent study with you you show them a portfolio in in the case of Stephen, and uh, he says yes or no. I think I could work with you, and then you just make appointments whenever you have new work to show him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was incredible because since my years at the museum school, and I was really out on my own other than uh, showing work to like Rob Steinberg and friends, and the having someone that you knew you had an appointment with, yeah, was such great impetus to sure. make new work and make good prints of everything so that. You didn't want to waste the time. It's like, oh, I want to go back up and see Stephen before another like four or five weeks go by. Mm. And uh, one of the first things that Stephen told me that really stuck with me was he he looked at some photographs I had made in Berlin of, you know, I was in, in Eastern Berlin and I was fascinated with all the buildings and the brickwork and everything. And he looked at a lot of the photographs and he pulled out one in particular and he said, what's the subject of this photograph? You know, what's this photograph about it? Other right. than being like a, you know, beautiful old you know, German building or whatever. That really got me thinking, you know, so I, I definitely credit him with changing me over from maybe being too influenced by, uh, you know, Sudek and just wanting to find beautiful things in the landscape and start thinking about, well, what, you know, what's the subject or what is this kind of about? Maybe I wouldn't have articulated it as what it's about, but really thinking more and more about what was going to be in the photograph other than making uh, something aesthetically pleasing. That That is the toughest transition to make in, in photography. Yeah. How does that come across with you? Because you teach photography here at Columbia. Yeah. How do you handle that usually? Um, well, you know, I, I'm lucky in that I'm usually teaching the classes after students have had photo one. And uh, photo one here at Columbia is taught in a very particular way that uh, Tom Roma came up with. And they're right at the beginning, hit over the head to talk about what their photographs are about and to not merely make photographs of, uh, you know, pleasing patterns and things which you probably go on and later do, but you can't talk about them. You know, you can't talk about them critically. There's nothing to say other than, oh, that one's beautiful or that Mm -hmm. one's not. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're going to have a conversation about it and, and try to learn from the medium, you have to make something that can be criticized, which is how uh, Tom articulates it. So when the students get to me, they've usually had that battered into their head a little bit and they under- have an understanding of uh, that's where we're, we're coming from. But then uh, in like my photo two class, the next challenge is now you've made singular images, which you can talk about. But what if you want to make, you know, a series of them, four or five or six, ten, you know, you tell me wh- what number. How How do you increase that from talking about one image to multiples. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just to clarify on this idea of what happens in photo one, because I think uh, Michael and I have also adopted this model, is that students are asked to say what the picture is about, but often without talking about what's actually shown in the photograph. Yeah, you cannot show what's you in can, it. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can say name anything in yeah, the right, It's about right. a dog, it's about a house. You right, it's like, it. exactly. But the thing about it is that I found interesting is that at the end of that photo one, um, class, they don't necessarily know any better how to talk about their pictures, but they they understand that now there's a struggle involved and there's a process involved in trying to talk about pictures in that way, because it's a very hard thing to do. I mean, well, um, yeah, I mean, I I think that the best part that comes out of photo one is that there's now an understanding two things. One, you have a better idea of maybe how to even approach analyzing the photograph mm -hmm. to look at what's actually in the photograph as opposed to 
what you thought was in the photograph. And then uh, this understanding the disconnect between subject and subject matter, right? right. What's the photograph about versus what is, is in, in the, the photo? Yeah. yeah. And so if, if someone comes out of photo one with that, there's, like you said, uh, Michael, you're way ahead of the curve. Sure. You know, that's sure. something you might not figure out working on your own for, you know, 12 years or more or never made it. Yeah, yeah they, either, they either come out with sort of buying into it or they roll, the eye, roll their eyes, hate you, and never take you again as a professor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which well, is fine, too. Yeah. I, I just had the experience last year of a, a very talented photographer who was doing uh, a lot of work with some collage work, but also a lot of like maybe Francesca Woodman inspired self-portraits that had a lot of geometric shapes and, and other stuff in it and, and uh, doing diptychs and all these, all these things that, and a lot of abstraction and everything. And when she got to my photo two class, I said, you can't make this work in here because I'll, I'll have nothing to say about it. There's no way for us to have a discussion about it. There's no entree for someone else other than you. And she's like, she almost dropped the class and then she decided to stick it out and she wound up doing incredible work. And at the end of the year, as she's graduating and going off, she, you know, she thanked me for pushing her to try something else. And that, nice. that all this other stuff came out that she never had looked at her life in that way. And the photographs were amazing. So sometimes it works out. Sometimes it works yeah, out. That's a great feeling when it does work yeah. out. Now, when, when you had this masterclass with Stephen Shore, he mentioned the 8 by 10 as like the great tool. Yeah, because I had been, I was shooting five by seven, as I said, but then I- Now, were you working in color or black and white at that time? Both, I was both. doing both, yeah, okay. yeah. I was shooting mostly, I started off shooting four, I went to four by five for a couple of reasons, because one, no one had a five by seven and larger, and I had been, I spent years, there's a lot of my work, I've never seen bigger than five by seven, because I would make a nice contact print of it, and that was the print, right? Mm -hmm. But I decided, I want to see these enlarged a little bit, and also before having a darkroom, I started shooting Polaroid 55 film and doing the whole peel apart, you know, right. getting the negative and seeing the print. And that was another way of working. So shooting four by five. And uh, I mentioned that to Steven and he said, oh, oh, four by five. No, 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 no. That's that's a student camera. You know, and like you mm. got to use an eight by ten. Mm. You know, that's that's the real view camera, an eight mm. by ten. You can't not not four by five. So, of course, you know, it's like that's. Every photographer practically is a gearhead anyways. They are like, oh, an excuse to go buy a whole other camera and a whole other set of things. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So I went out and got an eight. I found a beautiful eight by 10 Deerdorf. And uh, so now I've got the five by seven, four slash four by five Deerdorf and the eight by 10. And I started using that exclusively for a now, while. Was that yeah. Did you buy the camera before or after Joel Sternfeld gave you another bit of advice? Oh, yeah. I think I, I got both of them after after both of them had uh, hammered it into my head. Uh, Joel told me that eight by ten would ruin your life. He says that. <laughs> Did he go any further into that? No, or just well, just of course, that. I assume he's shooting color, so it's probably he might might have just meant financial ruin. Mm. I mean, I soon had to buy a car. You know, by, with eight yeah. by ten camera, I bought a car because I was like, you can't haul all this stuff around. Right. I, you know, I had to upgrade the tripod and everything else. So. Yeah, there's a financial ruin there, I guess. Um, and I think what he also probably thought was, you know, once you go to 8x10, there's no going back or something like mm. that, which wound up not being the case for me. But 8x10 is seductive. You know what really saved me from being an 8x10 photographer forever is uh, Kodak stopped making Azo paper. Oh. If they were still making Azo paper, I think I would still find a way to shoot 8x10 to make beautiful, those Azo contact prints with Amidol that you just, there's nothing that looks like. The last 8x10 project I photographed was here at Columbia, I believe. I 
I photographed in the uh, basement uh, under Prentice Hall right. know, on 125th Street right. where they had done some research into, it wasn't the Manhattan Project, but it was definitely nuclear uh, nuclear facility kind of heat transfer facility. They were doing experiments down there. And those are eight this, by ten. I, I, yeah, those some are all of those eight are on by your 10. website, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. some are on the website called Under the Studio. It's all with eight by ten uh, down there, and it was kind of incredible being down in that basement, like one in the morning, and uh, you know, fifteen minute exposures, and uh, almost puncturing a dead rat with my tripod leg as I was setting up in the dark down there. But um, then that that was right when I had my last batch of that Azo paper. Mm. And so, so you were doing eight by ten right up through grad school. Yeah, I thought that was two thousand and seven. Was the I think the last eight by ten project I was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When did a uh, grad school uh, come on your radar? Um, I like to say that New York and grad school were two of the things that I used to always disparage my friends whenever they mentioned it. When I lived in Boston, friends said they were moving to New York. I would give them hell, like what. <laughs> What's wrong with Boston? You know, why is everyone moving to New York? New York's dirty and ugly. Nah, 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 you know, <laughs> same thing with grad school. Like grad school, I, look, I already dropped out of undergrad. Why would I go to grad school? It's another waste of money. You want to be an artist? Be an artist. Why do you need to go to graduate school? It's like you know, come on. Did you get an undergrad degree then? No, no, no. Oh. I have no undergrad degree. Yeah, <laughs> no. That's my one claim to fame. I guess. <laughs> but now, now that you have the MFA from an Ivy League institution, no one looks back. No, you know, no, they, they, they assume you must have, uh, you right. know, the BFA. So, um, yeah. So what changed? Uh, one thing was I saw. Uh, a f- oh, wait, what happened to the girlfriend? Uh, which one? <laughs> oh, the, the one, one that kept you in to, Boston. Went, oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of. Boy, you're, you maybe intuited that, but the ex-girlfriend, who has also remained very close friends, is the photographer Eileen Quinlan, and she came to Columbia to get mm. her MFA and mm. studied with Tom, and I came up and visited her uh, and saw her first-year show and uh, saw Open Studios, and I met uh, Tom Roma through her, and I had seen the work she was doing before she went and the way she was talking about photography before she went. And I think just coming off of having that year of meeting with Stephen Shore and realizing that there really was value in having someone else that you knew you were going to show your work to, who you were nervous about showing your work to, that it pushed you in some way. And having been out of you know school and on my own for all these years, all of those ingredients came together where I decided, oh yeah, maybe maybe graduate school is worthwhile. And I also was thinking about getting out of being a computer person and constantly, you know, uh, keeping up on the latest developments in JavaScript and everything else. And I thought I could possibly uh, teach photography and that you needed to have a degree to do that. I was aware of that as well. But it was a combination of those two things. And uh, I didn't dream that I'd be able to go to Columbia because I just sort of assumed Ivy League school, you got to have a bachelor's degree to even apply. So the first year I applied to the uh, BARD program because I knew that they, they didn't require a BFA to go. But they, I didn't get in. Stephen Shore wrote me a letter. Was that a summer program? That's the summer That's the program. We all, we all looked at that program, uh, yeah. I remember. Yeah. I applied to that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Stephen Shore wrote me a great letter of recommendation. He said, I don't really have anything to do with the program. I don't know much about it, but I will write you a letter of recommendation for it. And uh, I didn't even get an interview, and he was he's, he couldn't believe it. He was kind mm. of upset about that. And then... Um, and then during the second year, I had a conversation, uh, I believe, with Tom. Yeah, with Tom Roma, and he, he he told me that Europeans apply to the program and that there is ways of getting around not having a bachelor's degree. Right. So it opened up the window that I might be able to apply. So that that was the first time you met Tom, then Tom Roma. I met Tom Roma 
who we have to mention. So it's the th- one person that all three of us have in common. I, right? I was going to bring yeah, that yeah, up. Yeah, actually, we wouldn't yeah, know yeah. each other without yeah. uh, Tom Roma. But, so. but, but more than that, um, we've all been very close to Tom Roma. Yeah. I mean, this, this yeah. is a kind of unique situation. Um, and, and of course, in the last few years, Anibal and I are married and have kids, and, and mm. so we don't get to spend as much time with Tom as, as yeah. we used to. Well, right? Tom, Tom, for years, wouldn't let me yes. have a girlfriend. Well, because, he says that. Yeah, yeah. He says if, if I could keep all my friends from getting married, I yeah, would. Yeah. yeah, he would, yeah. <laughs> well, see, he learned the lesson. He learned that the girlfriend <laughs> leads to marriage. Right. So and then you lose your me, friends. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. with me, I, I'm not even allowed to have the girlfriend. It's like, just keep but, me. But to all three of us, he's been a, a teacher and a mentor and a, a really, really good yeah. friend. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, so through Eileen Quinlan, that's how I met Tom. And uh, she invited me. The class was going to go to see the Michael Almereda film about uh, um, Bill Eggleston, Bill Eggleston yeah. at, at MoMA. And she invited me to uh, come along. And I guess they got me you know, a ticket to go with them. And that's when I first met Tom. And then I ran into him a, a, another time, I think, during Open Studios. Did, did we meet then? Because I was there. I was there too. Oh, really? I yeah, don't we remember. Were all there. All I, I remember meeting Yola Monikoff, who was applying to the program and yeah. was there, like, kind of torturing Tom with questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, hi, Yola. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and of course, I was talking to Eileen. We'll have and, Yola on too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was talking to, with Tom briefly, but mostly speaking to Eileen. And uh, then I was at um, in Union Square at Barnes and Noble. And uh, there was this book sitting propped up, prominently displayed in Prison Air, mm. which had just come out. Mm. And I is the first like photographer I knew or who I had met who had a book coming out. I was like, and it was, you know, this beautiful book. So I bought in Prison Air and I, I sent him an email saying, Oh, I just got this book. It's incredible, you know. So that was sort of the first communication, but really consistently since two thousand six when I got here. That's uh, you know, Tom and I have been uh, very close since then. You've you've um, actually done something that uh, that we never did. You 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 really worked with him in his shop, uh, building cameras. Yeah, I got I got lucky in in that. Well, I'm sure there's many sides to the story of how it, it came about, but part of it was uh, I desperately wanted uh, to switch to medium format to get away from large format. I was working on a project uh, photographing the newsstands where. It was very hard to set up a four by five or any other camera in the middle of the street and try to photograph these things. And, you know, uh, Tom is such an advocate for medium format photography that it's the best of all worlds that you get the long tonal scale, but you, you know, you don't get the bigger negative and uh, that it's the still I- with the portability, though. Yeah, the portability yeah. and that, you know, that you lose depth of field as you go up with the large format. So why do it? Anyways, I, I thought, well, I've got to have one of those cameras that Tom made, you know, Siciliano, got to get it. And so I started asking him for names of people who had the camera that might want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So I started making calls and they're sending emails off to people all over the country. And fairly consistently, they would all say either I'm still using the Siciliano, it's my main camera, so no, I don't want to sell it, mm-hmm. or B... I don't use it anymore, but I have sentimental attachment to it and I don't want to sell it. So no one wanted to sell their Siciliano. One hadn't come on the market at that point for several years. Somehow through that conversation, Tom watching me trying to track one down, the idea came up like, he, he oh, he had the body for maybe one more Siciliano. He had the parts that he could maybe put one more mm-hmm. together. I was like, well, you know, you want to put another camera together, another camera together. And uh, but at that point, he hadn't really worked in his machine shop since finishing his last camera, the Johnny, the six by eight Johnny, which he built in 1990, I think. And so he hadn't been really working that much and doing anything that precise in the, in the machine shop. 
And so he, he wasn't eager to jump into it. Um, but to make a long story short, I picked him up in, in Virginia from an art colony where he was hated. This was the big winter storm yes. on the way back. I rescued him from, right. from this art colony where they hate <laughs> everyone, but like one person hated him. And, uh, and uh, there was a huge snowstorm and we both needed to be back at Columbia for Monday and all the flights were going to be canceled. And we were in a front wheel drive car that I had a huge amount of stuff in the back. So lifting the weight off of the front wheels, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, a seven hour drive became a almost 12 and a half hour saga. And uh, for the last six hours, we couldn't even get off the road because the, all the off ramps were, were frozen over and snow. And I, we were seeing semi trucks literally flipped on their side. And I think to calm me down a little bit as I'm white knuckled, you know, driving this thing, Tom started designing the camera in his head right there and mentioning features. And he came up with the whole thing during that ride. It took us another like six months where we actually started working on it, but the whole thing came together right then. And he conceived of this camera, which we later called the Cyclops, as a camera that would teach me all of the machine shop practices. So his design was partially to know that I would learn about certain operations on the lathe, certain operations with the milling machine. And uh, I very naively thought that we would whip this thing out and it'd be done by the oh, yeah. time I, would, I was graduating in 2008. And there was a little bit of the, uh, you know, if everyone has seen the Karate Kid where, the, you know, wax on, <laughs> wax off, and you, you think you're painting a fence, but you're also learning something else. Well, we had to completely redo the machine shop, take everything out of, not, almost everything out of there. It hadn't been used in a while and, you know, reinstall new lights. And we upgraded so many things and a lot of did little jobs here and there. And a lot of me getting used to being in there was just being in the shop. Mm. And uh, so it wasn't until 2009 that, that the Cyclops was actually done. We made six of those cameras and it's still the main camera that I use today. It's it's the one that I they pull out. If you yeah, go, we, should, we should post a, a photo yeah, of that. If too. you go to SicilianoCameraWorks.com, all of Tom's cameras are there, and uh, including the Cyclops. But um, yeah, that's how that came about. And as luck would have it, when we were halfway halfway through the whole thing, a number of uh, Sicilianos came on the marketplace. Oh, really? And so as like a gesture of goodwill, I didn't buy them. I, I ferreted them on to other grad students who wanted to buy them because I had my eye on the prize to get the Cyclops <laughs> finished, you know. But uh, but if one of those had come on the market earlier, I'm might sure not have been built, no right? Cyclops no would Cyclops exist. No Cyclops would exist. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, um, Getting back to this relationship between the the picture making and the tools that we use to make pictures, mm. John Sharkovsky, a big influence of yours, am I correct? Um, or, certainly later, uh, I would say ever since the summer, I had this incredible summer in 2001, right before September 11th, uh, where I spent a summer in North Carolina uh, staying with my friend Rachel Plaster and her family, her her mother, Liza Plaster, had a dark room in her basement that was one of the first dark rooms I, I got to use privately. And uh, she also had a great library of mm. just a couple of choice things. She had Edward Weston's day books mm. and she had uh, the At J volumes that John Tchaikovsky did. And you mean the four volumes, the with, four Mar volumes. with Maria Morris? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so... I spent that summer going out and photographing, working in the darkroom, and then uh, Rachel has this amazing view from her front porch of this valley. It's actually called Happy Valley, Happy hmm. Valley, North Carolina, and it's it, you know it's it's that idyllic. 
And you can watch weather storms move across the valley from one side to the other while you sit there and eat on the porch and eat food from the garden. And so I read those Ache books and that was the first time I became aware that you could like someone that articulate reading into the photographs and describing them. And it opened up a whole other world for me thinking about how you could you know, read and interpret a photograph. And, and I went on from there to look at the photographer's eye and looking at photographs and everything else. So certainly has been a big influence in probably this part of this like renaissance of photography for myself. You know, I, I don't know if I would have gotten to the same place without him. But early on, I was completely unaware of it. Uh, photography until now, which was his sort of, I guess, a history book. I don't know what to call it. I mean, it's a history book, but it's a history book that's very concerned with the technology of photography and how that has changed uh, the way that we not only make pictures, but also the way we look at pictures, the printed Mm -hmm. image and such. I was wondering if that book played a particular role in your uh, sort of, you know, ideas about photography, because it seems like from looking at your website that there's a, there's a great concern with the technology of photography, always in the, in the, purpose of making an interesting photograph mm-hmm. and when you look at your photograph the technique is exquisite i mean the the kudzu pictures are just glorious i mean there's only, only that's the only word i could think of when i look at those photographs mm, the light you. just bounces off of that crazy plant like you couldn't believe it yeah. um they're, so i was wondering very lush prints very too, beautiful right? print yeah. open and full of light and um and now you're making me nervous because i <laughs> I, I have a a show of kudzu work coming up at smith college in october really and i have to right. make exhibition prints for it so Fantastic. it's like they have I, to live up to our yeah, uh, yeah, yeah exactly. otherwise you know <laughs> it's gonna be you know the work prints are great and all but then now you've, i've got yeah, actually like, everybody go yeah, to that yeah. show tell kai how yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm it's like so so it's like that that's kind of connection understanding of this medium of the of the mm. sort of the backstory of the medium which is the way we make pictures you know it's like yeah. the way that any artist who works with a medium that requires well, you know, you know, uh, part of it is I, I learned something about you. Know, I think we're talking about cameras and equipment in a way, and how it feeds into the work sure, you make, right? Sure. And uh, I mentioned when I was at North Carolina School of the Arts that they gave me this Nikon F, and then I went out into the world and and had great success with it. And when I left, uh, when I graduated, I went to a pawn shop because I had very little money and I wanted to buy another camera, and I. I believe I got a Pentax of some stripe. I might have been a K1000. It might have been something else. But um, it was all I could afford. And it wasn't as good as that Nikon. It didn't mm. feel like the Nikon. Mm. And I didn't really feel like even taking it out and making pictures with it like I did with that Nikon. Mm. And uh, I, I, say, I say to this day that I never made a good photograph with that camera. Right. right? And so... And I also play guitar, and I there's this yeah there's I spent a summer away from my nice guitar, staying with my grandmother with this really cheap guitar, and I wrote a bunch of songs on that cheap guitar that sounded great. They're real like cacophonous, and you know they had a, you couldn't make any sweet sound with them, but you could make good rhythm with it, mm-hmm. and that kind of translated to me to different cameras, like oh this camera, you know, with an eight by ten or a four or a five by seven you can make photographs of things and and they read a certain way that you couldn't do with a 35 millimeter camera or mm-hmm. and so uh, that kind of awareness came early on that the equipment mattered if if not only just the way the photographs looked but how you felt about it like you know every time i every single time i take that cyclops out of my camera bag and and hold it up to my eye you know, I get a feeling like, yes, you know, mm-hmm. something's about to happen because mm-hmm. I've got this thing that's, you know, just for me in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that that on that end, just that technical end of having the the right instrument for the type of you know song you're about to play makes a lot of sense. Now, when you start a project, is that like a, a primary concern, or do you like, for example, you just stumble onto Newtown Creek and then you're like walking around going, "How do I make a picture of this? Let me try different things." When you were down in Florida, uh, making the pictures that became the project. I, uh, about, about face, face? About picturing face. Tampa. That was two and a quarter, right? Square yeah. format, you know. So that's a very different thing than what the Cyclops does. Oh yeah. Um, is there an exploratory time where you're trying different things on the same subject, or do you know right away what's going to happen? Is a combination of the two? Yeah, um, that's good. Uh, so a couple different answers. The for the Tampa work, first of all, I. Probably from going to the same camera shows you went to. Mm. I can remember like seeing the Hasselblad, you know, right. and that. And, and when I was at the museum school, they didn't have a Hasselblad, but they had uh, a Rolleiflex that no one ever used. And mm. so I loved the Rolleiflex mm. too. And so I, I was aware of the two and a quarter thing, but a Hasselblad was the ideal, and it was always way out of my price range. Sure. And um, something magic happened with the digital world br very briefly. Yes, there was a window. A window. Was a window. Yeah. Yes, I think around 2004, yeah. uh, where all these pros were getting rid of their Hasselblads yep. and buying their digital cameras before they could get a digital back for them. And I was able to get a Hasselblad with an 80 millimeter, you know, a modern T-Star black uh, 80 millimeter lens and a rollback, the whole kit. Uh, for 800 bucks, I think. <laughs> and so I had this camera, but I, I just, I, I only, I bought it almost on spec or, you know, like I will use this for something someday. I right. can finally have it. And uh, I was going down to Tampa, Florida uh, to help um, another fellow grad student. Um, Sarah Stracy was working on a public art project down there. And I didn't, I thought I would be so busy working on her project. I probably wouldn't be able to photograph. But I thought, well, this is a tiny little camera. I don't even need to bring a tripod. I can just, I'll bring the Hasselblad with me right. and I'll just have it with me. And it just turned out to be fortuitous that this square format with those those billboard and bus stop benches wound up being the ideal camera for sure. it. So luck. And luck really. in that case, yeah. Luck in that case. Yeah. And... Um, and the kudzu, I had started off shooting with an 8x10. That's what I thought. I thought yeah. you were, early on it was an 8x10 yeah. project. Yeah. Exactly. And that was part of the, my awakening into the world of medium format is that going out with an 8x10, I might have like 80 sheets of film with me for an excursion, you know, over several weeks or whatever, days or whatever it was. And I would very preciously guard all 80 sheets because, you know, that's all I had with me. And then when I switched to uh, medium format, I could be much wilder and try different things. And I could, you know, climb down cliffs and do all the stuff that I couldn't do with 8x10. And so that's the only project I've ever shot 6x7. I don't really like 6x7 that much, but it matched the aspect ratio of 8x10 8 8 close enough. Okay. So that's why I shoot that with, with that camera. Okay. And um, right now, if I was to go out and start something new, I'm probably going to bring the Cyclops and shoot six by nine. That's so you what, found your tool. That's what I. Being, that's yeah. what I see. Okay. That being said, I'm currently working on something else uh, where I'm photographing with a Leica with a long with a long lens on it, and I've got a couple of things with the Panorama I'm working on. So right. there are going back to our mentor here, Tom Roma, who's used the same camera and the same lens for all these years. Uh, I've been experimenting, and I, I pick up the different tools for the different reasons yeah. and I've tried on Newtown Creek I've tried using those the Panorama I want to do some under, underwater stuff so I try I worked with a Nikonos and underwater flash mm. it was a total disaster it's, <laughs> there's so much silt and stuff in that water that it just looks like I'm shooting a gray card or something it's terrible like that doesn't work mm. but I will try things but but 
yeah, mostly I'll find like I, there's due to the the idea. There's like one thing that just naturally resonates that yeah. this is the camera to use. Because I feel like you know, for me, uh, the more when I started looking back at all the projects I've done, they've always been. You know, I start with something. It's a feeling. I have a mm -hmm. sense, and, and I'm glad that we still can allow our kind of intuition to, you know, play a huge role in how we approach a particular subject matter. Because mm -hmm. if it's not, you know, if you're not going to do it, there's no intuition to it. It's not very interesting. Yeah. For me as a photographer, so this idea that I, you know, I need to go and use this particular piece of equipment in this film or this is a digital whatever. Um, the subject matter usually I tell my students it dictates it asks me what it wants you know from it it's like it's about this you know it's so yeah it and you to also have to be way. you also have to be sensitive to that when you try it and it doesn't work to you have move to let on. it go yeah, yeah like yeah go ahead I mean I, I think about the um, the Tampa photos and and my instinct would have been uh, initially I'm I'm looking at signs I'm looking at billboard do something a little wide do something mm -hmm. uh, either six nine or panoramic or something like that. But then I think about how you treated the juxtaposition of everything. That square format gives you this sort of nice, tight crop on things mm -hmm. where you can decide what's, you know, what part of that is in the frame, what part of a person is a frame, what part of a billboard's in a frame. I think much in much uh, in a much more effective way. Yeah, yeah, it made it a it made it a more difficult photographic problem, you know, and it and. Uh, also, with two and a quarter, so much is done center weighted, like everything's just in the center yes. of the picture. Yes. And so that was also nice that, I mean, I always had something in the bottom left or the bottom right hand corner, but everything else was, you know, there wasn't going to be something in the center. So that was right. kind of nice too. And those pictures have had a few incarnations. One of them was as almost billboards, not billboard size, but, you know, fairly yeah, large size. In Times Square, were they? Yeah, on an 80-foot wall in Times Square, right after I had my thesis show, I was approached by um, a representative for the Times Square Alliance, and they were, they, they think they still do, they, they fund art projects for yeah. Times Square, and they thought that those would be perfect for that area, and uh, it wound up being great, because uh, as I was installing them, all these uh, theater people would come by and a lot of the dancers and people that are involved in Broadway they spend their summers down in Florida practicing and getting ready and uh, people kept coming like funny. oh my god this reminds me of Florida so much that's what the people look like down there and stuff you like have that a, so, uh, installation photos of all of I've got some but not as many as I should have yeah and now I, you're putting the pictures together in a book yeah so I that project went on for a number of years. I, I, I first went down there in 2007 in the summer, and that was when the lucky accident of discovering them happened, and I happened to have the camera. And if you, if you were to see the contact sheets from that first trip down there, you would see uh, like what Michael was saying about the way that they're put together. I wasn't sure, and so I tried different things, showing more of the bench, more of this. I, you know, I experimented around, and it became clear, you know, the. It, the medium teaching you that this was the one way it would work. Mm. So I went back another time in 2008, in January 2008, and I spent 10 days like photographing like a madman with a map and a car, just going day and night, finding everything I could. And then I sat on it for a while. And uh, to make it into a book, I, I knew it needed one other element, that uh, if it was just these... Uh, portraits in the lower left or right hand corner that your eye would get used to just like looking back and forth and there was no context a greater context of of what where these people were and you know what kind of thing was happening to them and also between 2008 when it was this real estate bubble going on and people were mm. mad buying things like I, I went to uh 
a party down there where uh, it was a launch for a building. And I met a guy who told me that he had bought an, a unit on the 12th floor of the building that they were going to be building next door to that building. So he was just there to see how they did with his with this building so that he would know how they would build the next one. So it was just, you know, I thought insanity. But that all crashed. And when I went back for the last time to Tampa was 2010. And I, I thought, I just want to get landscapes that give that sense of loss and sense of who, who you know, these kind of, who are these people and, and what kind of world are they living in down there? Mm. So once I had those landscapes done, I brought uh, every, I printed everything out uh, in small little um, inkjet prints and uh, brought it over to Tom mm. Roma's house. And uh, I watched him uh, while I was there. He edited and sequenced it into a 52-picture book mm. that uh, we later titled About Face Picturing Tampa. And uh, it looks like, fingers crossed, within the next six months or so uh, uh, that the book's going to get printed. Tom's starting up uh, a press. He's going to be working with a printer in Italy and uh, going to be making a series of books. So. Wow, that's, that's, cool. that's yeah. great. I know he's been talking about that for a while. For yeah. a long time, yeah. Yeah, so hopefully that will be coming out soon. Uh, it's been That's the only project that I feel is done because it's mm. edited and sequenced into this new thing. You know, it's, it was all a group of photographs, then it became a book. And the, the ones that aren't in the book almost don't exist in a way. Like, you right. know, now there's this new thing, the book, and right. that's going to be done. And, you know, I think if you guys all have websites, right? There's this thing on a website where, like, to go to Tom's website, it's all like, here's the books. Here's it's the books, like yeah. the final thing. Yeah. yeah. And whereas I'm like, well, you know, I'm working on this project still. How many pictures should I put up? Should I even put this one up that's no longer going to later? How I often should you change them? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so like all these up. ongoing projects, mm -hmm. it feels uh, artificial in a way to like select some and put them out into the world. And yet you want to share what you're doing sure. and not wait, for, you know, for years and years later to say, hey, right. I did this, you know, it's done. So, uh, yeah, that, I think I meandered through many different questions on that answer, but um, it, no, it was uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I think you hit well, them it's all. A, well, yeah. it's interesting. It's like it brings us almost back to the beginning of our conversation, which is the idea that time passes. You go mm -hmm. back, you reconsider the thing that you're photographing. Yeah. When is the right time to say, okay, this project is done? You know, yeah. all these questions are, are constantly yeah. sort of surrounding us as we make pictures in the world you know and especially pictures about the world yeah and i think also i don't know i'm i assume you guys feel it i always feel an anxiety about ending a project if i don't have at least one or two other proto projects on the going burn. on oh yeah, yeah something oh, yeah. has to overlap yeah, something i'm not has gonna to like just stop and be like oh now i have nothing can't you know? do it no. <laughs> yeah. no it's terrible no. it's a terrible feeling yeah so. that's why you always have a few things going yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. so yeah, um, do you always feel like you have to stand on your motorcycle when you take a picture no but it helps it's it a, helps it's okay. a great right. tripod yeah yeah, yeah. you, you want to okay. get you know that goes back to uh, i think i read in the day books edward weston's day books about him being out with ansel adams and of course and of course climbing uh, on top, yeah, of, climbing the, on top of the of cadillac the yeah exactly yeah. yeah and even uh edward weston had uh he bought i forget what it was a woody it was he bought a car when he was on his trip and he would you know load film in the back of it at night and i think he would crawl on top of it as well so yeah. i think the idea of having the moving tripod as your vehicle <laughs> just happens it's, that i only have a motorcycle it's but. funny i used to do that a lot too but when i started doing that i had a, a pickup truck and that's right oh, yeah before right yeah. on top of it and then i had a Toyota Tercel, and I could have on top of that roof would start collapsing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, you can do that. Bad tripod. Crumple, 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 crumple. Yeah, yeah. So how how many projects would you say you're working on right now? Um, 
You don't have to name them all, but just like... Yeah, yeah. well, it will help me count, I guess, okay. even okay. if I give, like, fake names or whatever. Okay. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm still photographing kudzu. I'll be going down. Uh, that, again, I think is nearly done or almost done. I'll be photographing some this summer in July when I go down to North Carolina. Uh, I was just out on Newtown Creek, and I have a great story about super fun sites I can tell you in a minute. I, I saw your Twitter feed about Oh, you did? Yes. Yeah. 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 Basically, the, the short story is sure, I, yeah. I was walking around there on sun, on Sunday, and uh, every time when I get out, I like rub the mud off of my feet from walking around the, co- the, around the shore, and something felt different. I looked down, and I could see that part of the boot with the sole was sticking out in a way it shouldn't be. I turned my foot over and the bottom of the boot had started to disintegrate and parts of the boot were missing. So like, oh, no. yeah, yeah. They were dissolving. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's it got kind of like, scary looking. Yeah. yeah. It got up inside and started yeah. melting away the foam. I think that oh. attached the sole. And so yeah. both boots were destroyed wow. and that never happened before. So something new is out mm. on the coast of Mutant Creek. <laughs> So anyways, uh, <laughs> assuming I get more boots, I'll continue that project. Um, Hazmat suit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then for the last year, I've just been ramping up on the thing I'm most sort of excited about because it's new and challenging is making portraits with the panorama. Those are the, clo- the ones that are close to the idea of the Panavision frame. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, that's number three. You actually just... Uh, built a special finder for your panorama, didn't you? Yeah. I Well, I'm using... Uh, an iPhone as the viewfinder because uh, for those of you who've ever seen the panorama, it comes with one viewfinder that matches up with the 50 millimeter lens, and I'm using uh, a 150 lens with some extension tubes, so there was no way to recreate that. Uh, so I I first made a sports finder with some paper and a modified sports finder from a Mamiya, and then I found this great app. It's called Viewfinder, and you can make your own bright lines with the iPhone. And then through a couple different ways of mounting the iPhone to the panor- to the panorama, I worked out uh, a system. And I finally got to use, uh, from all that time working in Tom's machine shop, I was desperate to have some sort of ability to do machining at home. But I have, you know, a small apartment in Brooklyn, no, mach- no great machine shop. So I bought a, a Unimat, this amazing uh, Austrian uh tool that is a milling machine and a lathe and you know you name it dices slices everything <laughs> and uh, I made this very tiny part out of a block of aluminum that allowed me to use a Nikon uh, a Nikon F uh, accessory shoe for the flash uh, mount which is this custom bracket they've got onto this iPhone adapter holder that I have what and do your uh, neighbors think about the Unimat you know, I don't, I, I've never asked. You know? <laughs> I don't think it makes that much noise. But, okay. but after working at Tom's shop with real, like, sure. real size machines where I could have knocked that part out in probably an hour or two. Yeah. It took me like seven and a half hours to machine this little block, you know. But, but. It looks good. It's mine. It you know, I did good. it. And yeah, it looks great. And it works great. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the viewfinder for that, that camera. Um, I'm also working on uh, another project with that deals with airplanes. So that's number four. That's with the Leica right now. And well, there's something else. And then I'm just shooting on the street, you know, as I walk around with the Leica mm-hmm. as well. That's going to turn into something that builds on that 40th daily kind of project of photographing around my neighborhood especially. And... Boy, that might be it. Might be yeah. those five things that I'm sort of actively pursuing right now. Oh no, that's not true. There's another thing. There's a, a project that I shot with a digital camera, a cheap digital camera. Someone gave me like a Fuji Fine Picks. Oh no, it was a Canon 
Uh, <laughs> what was the little tiny point and shoot? Uh, an elf? Yes, an elf. An elf. Yeah, it was a elf. canon. I had an elf, and I I photographed this project. I call and I made a, a, a maybe influenced by Stephen Shore. I made a, a Apple book. You know, oh yeah, 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 sure, books. yeah, yeah right. sure. And I photographed just the top of the Empire State Building, the spire from the Empire State Building, as it lined up with different elements. Is of that the city. an elf? That's that you did that on yeah, the really? Oh. And, uh, I remember seeing those pictures. But I want to, they're kind of crummy because of that, the elf. And I want to, I think about rephotographing them with the 250 lens on the Hasselblad. So that's in mm. the back of my mind. I might try to do some of that this summer too. Very different, yeah. Yeah, very <laughs> different. But I think we'll be better. Yeah. yeah so, better. so this summer intensive is over in, uh, what is it, three more weeks? Yep. Fourth of July weekend, it'll and, be done. And then you get uh, how much time uh, to yourself? Well, yeah, this is where the people <laughs> who get 10 days off are going to want to track us down and kill me I guess but <laughs> I, I only technically have an 11 month position so I'm off the rest of July and probably until like August 20th or something like yeah, that yeah I mean I, I have a 10 month position but and, and, and people say oh you're so lucky never then and I am I'm very lucky but I also only get paid for 10 months yeah, yeah. 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 well yeah there is that there yeah. is that there <laughs> is that yeah a lot of people wouldn't take off, take a cut and pay for, right yeah so then you'll be off to North Carolina work on the kudzu project Yep, hopefully. Ready for, when is the show again at Smith? Uh, it's in it's October 5th, I believe. That Monday is when the show opens. And it's up for all of October. Oh, great. Uh, and the website again is it's kaimcbride.com, right? Dot com. Dot com. Yeah. Yep. And what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Kai McBride. Kai McBride. Yeah. Yeah. At Kai McBride. Yeah, I feel so part of the one of the advantages of being involved in, uh, in digital or the computer world for so long is that. Uh, you know, I I was using the internet before the World Wide Web. You know, getting on Gopher sites and mm-hmm, downloading right, stuff, and right. so because of that, I've been posting to things for many years. And I feel sorry. There are other Kymic brides out in the world, like, and uh, why would you feel sorry for them? Because they're not getting anywhere <laughs> near. Like, if you search my name, I like I dominate the Google results because they, even though there's a couple, they're trying to sneak in. But right. hey, the, I, the, I the, the early bird, the you know? Handle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the early bird, handle, you know? I've got it. Kymicbride.com, right. I got it. You know. I think the last time I got Michael Dalton anything was uh, CompuServe uh, at CompuServe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you guys. I'm Do you so have any any uh, any uh, parting thoughts? Any advice for young photographers <laughs> oh, out there? Oh boy, yeah, no, I should have pre- prepared that. I think there's a couple of questions that get asked. Actually, this is the last thing I'd want to go out with is uh, such a simple question that I always find really troubling to answer is. Uh, what do you what do you take pictures of, or what do you like to take <laughs> pictures of? I, I've been asked that twice this week in two very different circumstances. One by a photographer who was probably expecting a very serious answer, and one by someone who I was photographing who just was curious. And when you you know, unless you're Ann Gettys, it's very hard, I think, to come up with a real simple answer of what you like to photograph. You know, without feeling like you have to go into some, you know, very long mm. thing and, and come up with something unsatisfying, you know? So I've never come up with a really good one-liner, like elevator pitch thing for that. And I feel like it's something maybe we you need to do. Do you guys have good answers I, for that? No, no, no. My never. answer is always convoluted. Oh, well, I do some some landscape. Yeah, it's, it's like, you well, know, it depends on the project I'm working on. Yeah. Uh, there's, I, there's no easy answer. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes they just want to know, oh, I don't do commercial work. I don't photograph yeah, weddings. And they're like, oh, so you just photograph for yourself. And then that's enough. Right. But, but if it's another photographer asking you, you really feel like, I'm like, under, well, under, yeah. it's landscapes, but there's no people in them. But I do, I am doing a portrait. You know, it's like there's no, yeah, it's never an answer. Yeah. And it also is like advice for young photographers is 
luckily I don't get asked that one as as much, <laughs> but um, except for maybe during class. But you know, there's nothing. If when you boil down to like things that Gary Winogrand said, uh, you know, uh, you know things that Tom says in his class, I think whatever it all comes down to is a you've got to keep making work, mm. and b you've got you know when you get that work, you have to look at it and let the let photography be the master, let it teach you what you need to do, and mm -hmm. but the only way to do that is to to be hard on yourself and to really look at it. So I, if you do those two things, you keep making the work like. For people like us, it might have taken like 10 or 12 years to get through a breakthrough. And maybe if you're in school, you can get it in two semesters or something. But the only way it's ever going to happen is if you put in the work. And you you got to make the work. You got to yeah. make the work. Well, great. I think we did it. Great. Thank you. Glad to be an early participant. Well, that concludes the second episode of The Photo Show. I know it ran a little long, but I thought Kai had so many interesting stories, I just couldn't cut them out. Uh, we are now on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Uh, we are also on Twitter, at Real Photo Show, on Facebook, fb.com forward slash Real Photo Show, and of course, thephotoshow.org. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.